The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. I walked out of the theater committing to do all that I could to lessen the suffering of animals. The movie was Gorillas in the Mist, and I saw it in 1988. I clicked out of YouTube, committing to do all I could to help save this earth and its inhabitants. The movie was Endgame 2050, and I watched it yesterday. The filmmaker is my first guest on today's program. Hi, everybody. Thank you for tuning in for the Main Street Vegan Podcast. I am your host, Victoria Moran. In the second half of today's program, we'll be talking radiant health and disease prevention with Hans Diehl, PhD of Loma Linda University. And right now, it is my pleasure to introduce physician, environmentalist, and now filmmaker of the documentary that has most recently changed my life, Sophia Pineda Ochoa, MD. She was born and raised in Guadalajara, Mexico, where she attended medical school, and she devoted a full decade for medical training. But over time, her perspective changed on what she believes is most urgent. She's come to understand that humans, herself included, are literally destroying the planet on which we live. She believes that humanity is not only making the planet uninhabitable for human civilization, but also for the countless other species with whom we share this world. And that's why she and the wonderful <laughs> musician and entertainer Moby have created this stunning new documentary, Endgame 2050. Welcome, Dr. Ochoa. Hi, Victoria. So nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's delightful, and it's so much fun to hear you having just watched the film. Because in addition to directing this film, and I think writing parts of it, you are the wonderful narrator, and I, I just felt so close to you and so like I wish you lived nearby and 
we could go have tea whenever we can go have tea <laughs> in the world again. So what a pleasure to have you on the program today. So as you know, this film blew me away. I thought I had all the information that I needed about the environment and what we could do to hopefully fix it. But I realized that I was completely in the dark. And what actually happened that made the film so powerful for me was that I started watching it night before last. So I did stop midway and I was completely dumbfounded by everything that you talked about with the um, mass extinctions, with the acidification of the oceans, with the human population. And I realized the next day when I turned it on and you were just about to get to climate change, <laughs> that as, as awful as climate change is, there is so much going on in addition. So start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. And uh, tell me where this film was um, conceived. Well, this film was conceived over time. Um, you know, uh, as you know, I'm a physician and, and I, I did medical school in Mexico and then I came here. And then for many years, you know, like for 10 years, I had, um, I was like on one work visa after another. I finally just got my green card. And so I think some of the frustrations that I had, like, with the medical system, you know, as, as somebody who was kind of an idealist as I was, you know, going through medical school, like, oh, I'm going to help people, I'm going to help people. And then sometimes, like, just kind of faced with reality, just not feeling like I was getting that. And, you know, sometimes, you know, like, with some limitations in the medical system. And also just becoming aware of the existential threats that we're facing over the last decade, you know, just becoming more aware of the environmental things that are going on on the planet that I just felt like, you know, we really need to kind of like raise awareness. Like, I think people have a good survival instinct. If they knew so much stuff was going on, maybe they would make different choices and they would actually care if, if they knew that it's, it's like their lives could be affected too, you know? So that's why I decided to to make this film. <laughs> well, I, I'm so glad you did, and I think your instincts were right on. Well, one of the things that I feel now is when I speak with people who are climate deniers or who just want to blow off the climate part, I don't have to try to convince them about climate. I can just talk with them about some of the other things because the response to all of them are, are the same. So... Um, you certainly lit a fire under me. So I want to start, Sophia, with probably the part of the film that is even more controversial than the suggestion that people should go vegan. And that is the part about human population. I was just thrilled that you had on Dr. Paul Ehrlich, whose uh, 1968 book, Population Bomb, I read in 1968. In fact, I think I had to read it <laughs> for a class in high school. And, and that was such a big issue. And in the late 60s, the early 70s, population, zero population growth. And then somehow... It just faded away as if it had all been taken care of. So talk with us about human population, what the problem is, and why we started ignoring it. 
Yeah, well, you know, it, you don't really have to. You can just look at some of the numbers to to kind of get a better idea of what's going on. And I mentioned some of them in the film. You know, right now we're adding about a net growth. Right now we're in an environmental overshoot. So we are consuming more resources that the planet can sustainably um, support. And that goes for pretty much everything, like even like soil that we use for food. You know, we're degrading it into dirt at a very fast rate so that, you know, and I didn't even go into that into the film. But anyway, so the, the projections are like we're in an environmental overshoot. And despite that, um, you're right, we kind of stopped having that conversation. And uh, because, you know, I, I haven't been doing that conversation like, uh, you know, for a long time, I think that what happened was that um, perhaps some of the projections, like the catastrophic projections, I think maybe some of them didn't turn out, like maybe someone who wrote in the book said, oh, England is going to be underwater or something like that. And so people just dismissed it all like, oh, there's no problem with population. We can keep adding a billion people to the planet every 12 years and there's no issue. So I think some of the problem why the, why the issue was kind of swept under the rug was, was that. And also I think, um, I don't know, if, I think there may have been some um, racism involved in, in some of it, which is totally wrong and which um, should not be the case because population is a global issue. It's not about one race or another. You know, we all have a footprint actually developed worlds um, consume a lot more per individual than than another country which may be having a higher growth rate. So we all matter. Every single one of us matters. But I think to answer the question, I think that may have been what, uh, that's just my theory, why, why people kind of stop talking about it. But the fact is, you know, if you think about it, Victoria, you know, just about 200 years ago, there was one billion people on the planet in the early 1800s. And I think 1804 is what they, uh, what they said it was, you know, the population census of one billion. And now we're almost eight, you know. Actually, when I started making the film, the population was, I think, around 7.4. And when I finished it, it was 7.8. So even the film was outdated by the time it had finished. And so it affects, it affects all of the things in the planet, you know, uh, no matter how much we try to be angels and consume as little as possible. And, you know, even if we were all Greta Thunbergs and you just little angels trying to consume, the fact is we all consume, you know, resources and, um, and that has a profound impact on the environment. You know, I'm from Mexico, as I mentioned. And even though, like, the film has a strong emphasis on animal agriculture, rightly so, because it's disproportionate, the amount of resources that that industry um, uses in a very inefficient way to feed humanity. Um, like, for example, in Mexico, where I'm from, there's a lot of deforestation happening because of avocado, which is crazy, you know? Now that avocado is being exported to the world and everybody loves it, Thousands of acres just in Mexico are being leveled for that. So it really is, no matter how you cut it, something that affects the entire planet and all of the inhabitants, all of the animals who we share it with.
Sorry for the long-winded answer. No, no, it, it's it's a wonderful answer because I think these are things we really do need to, to be looking at. I thought that Dr. Ehrlich was, was so great in the film when he said that it's, it's ridiculous to say that the number of people doesn't matter, that it's all about consumption. And also, uh, we're consuming too much, uh, certainly uh, people in, in the developed world. So you, you touch on population. Uh, you also get into ocean acidification, which I was somewhat familiar with, but you really explain it much better. Why is ocean acidification a problem and why do we have it? It's quite simple, actually. It's, it's simply because we're putting a lot of CO2 in the environment and about a third of it gets absorbed by the ocean. So in addition to warming up the ocean with the CO2 that it absorbs heat and in addition to, you know, putting all the waste that we are doing, um, the, the, the CO2 that we release into the environment turns into carbonic acid in the ocean and it is acidifying it, and it's already having direct measurable effects. So the pH has decreased, and it is projected to decrease further by the end of the century. Um, the pH has decreased from pre-industrial times from 8.2 to 8.1, which seems like, oh, just a 0.1. But, yeah, it seems like so little, all these changes that we do... Um, but, but actually, if you live in the ocean, you know, that's a huge change. You know, imagine if they decreased the concentration of, of the air that, that we breathe, you know. And, and it is having a, a very profound impact even right now before or, or with the changes that we're already doing uh, in the ocean. Actually, um, the animals that have shells that need the shells to protect their bodies to survive, um, like crabs. Or like, um, or for example, like the oysters, uh, the oyster industry is having, um, uh, they had to be moved, like, the, like the Phil mentions, it, it had to be moved from the West Coast to Hawaii because the water there was too, was too acidic for them to survive. So, you know, I feel like that's just like a canary in the coal mine. You know, if, if, the, if the oysters can't survive in the ocean, then do we have to like move them? Like, how is that acceptable? You know, how is that not an alarming thing and when one thing that i do mention in the film for anyone who may think well the oysters you know that doesn't really affect me directly you know that's really sad for the oysters or the crowds but i don't have shells in my body the thing is because we're all interconnected one point that i made sure to highlight in the film is that half of the oxygen that we breathe comes from the from the ocean from tiny little creatures called phytoplankton these plants that produce oxygen, just like the plants on earth produce, on, on land produce oxygen. So these things are susceptible to warming and to acidification. So we can't be so, you know, so careless and think, well, it's the ocean, it doesn't affect me. You know, we are actually all, we're interconnected and, and we are very much dependent on the environment that supports us, just like the crabs are or the oysters are. Yes. Well, you talked a lot about the ocean, and one of the things that was really a wake-up call for me was about the plastics. I mean, I've known that plastics aren't great, and so I try to use other things when it's convenient, but now I understand I need to use other things when it's inconvenient. 
I need to go on a plastic fast and let it last a day at a time as long as I live. So why is that a good idea? Well, it's a good idea because, you know, plastic is great because it's so durable. That's why we love it. You know, that's why it's so convenient and wonderful for plucking everything. But because it's so durable, it, it also lasts in the environment um, for as long as it does and doesn't really degrade, you know, when we throw it in the ocean or when it reaches the ocean, even if we throw it in the garbage can uh, and it reaches the ocean, it just dissolves into tiny little microplastics that um, actually, you know, we had a very big section on those that we eliminated entirely for the, from the film because there was, just wasn't enough time. But, um, I mean, these microplastics, they affect the animals. They affect, you know, because it, it affects even, it's getting into the salt. So it, it really comes back to haunt us, you know? <laughs> you know, in the film, I focus mostly just on the fish because um, they are objectively and measurably showing a lot of plastic pieces in, in, in people who eat fish and, and we can see them. But, um, but even if you don't eat fish, you know, it still is, you know, I mean, I eat salt, you know, and, and I don't want to be eating um, plastic fibers in, the, in, in my salt. And, and the animals are paying the ultimate price. Right now we see on the news every day whales who washed out ashore um, filled with the stomachs filled with plastic bags because the poor whales, they're filter feeders. They open up their huge mouths, take in thousands of gallons of water, and then push the water out through the sides and they filter everything in because it's supposed to be food for them. But now if you're a filter feeder in the ocean, what you're keeping inside of your mouth is plastic bags. So it's it's so sad. Like I feel like so sad for the whales that are dying because they have plastics in their stomach. And it goes the same for smaller animals as well. You know, um, I think we also took this out from the film, a uh, um, um, figure that talked about how I think 93% of um, seabird species now have plastic in their stomachs. And how, how sad, like these poor birds, you know, they, for millions of years, or you know, they were they were eating the things that they thought were food from the ocean, and now they think it's food, and they feed it to their chicks. They bring it back to their nest, and they're giving it to their chicks, and they're actually giving them plastic, and their chicks are dying. So, it's it's just not right. But I understand it's a very inconvenient thing to do, and I think that plastic in particular is one of the things where. We really kind of need a top-down approach, like a system-wide change to some biodegradable things, you know, because it's very, very hard to, I admit it is very hard to to avoid it because yes. everything over to temp becomes plastic, wrapped in plastic, so it's it's really hard, but I guess we need to do what we can. Well, I, I was doing some research this morning. My husband reminded me that there is also a problem with microplastics in a lot of the body care and toiletry items that people use. And I was looking at, at those. And what it seems is that the very expensive, upscale, cruelty-free, natural brands 
don't have that. And they also seem to be packaged in glass. But so little in in the more affordable lines comes that way. And I I was very proud of uh, a company called The Fanciful Fox um, that's online. It's also in Brooklyn. One of my Main Street Vegan Academy graduates and her mother are behind The Fanciful Fox. And I hadn't even thought about it until watching your film and looking in my, my cabinet this morning that they package everything in glass. It, it's expensive. There's a lot of waste I've read when a company uses glass, you know, since it breaks. But how wonderful that some companies are going the extra mile to do the right thing here. And also in watching your film, I realize that environmentalism is an animal rights issue. You know, we always talk about veganism being this three-legged stool of, of animal rights and, and health and the environment when it's they really are all together and certainly doing these things to save the planet are also saving the animals. So what did you discover about climate change and is it too late? Um, oh, I don't want to say that it's too late, but um, well, I mean, it's, it's just very simple. You know, it baffles me sometimes how it's like there's like people talk about like controversy it's so so simple it just it's about the physical properties of some gases and we call them greenhouse gases and the simple thing about it is that they absorb heat and so that results in 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 the climate you know being warmer and 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 being more disruptive and one thing that i focused in the film again because i was with the entire film i was trying to evoke you know, like concern and, you know, so I, I focused on a situation with, with methane, um, with the methane, which is um, in, increasingly concerning because we have permafrost that's being, that's, that's forming methane and, and we have methane clathrates under the ocean, which is these frozen things of methane, these huge amounts, much more than the methane that's in the environment. And, and as we warm up, you know, it, there's a very big risk of these methane large bodies coming up, which could be push recovery kind of out of reach. So, I mean, that's why I feel like people hear a lot about climate change. And that's that was kind of my focus in the film. I wanted to focus a little bit on, on those. But um, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is that it needs to be like aggressive action on that. And that's why. I, I also brought up, you know, your diet, because sometimes technology can be expensive and we all need to move to renewable energy as quickly as possible. Um, but of course, that also sometimes has its own impact. And, and even though we need to do it, you know, there's some other things that we can also take in addition to that, like changing our diet, which um, which could be very, very helpful for that. And so, yes. Um, I had a, a friend who went to a climate conference and she said most of the scientists are just depressed, but but the few who say there is hope say that the hope comes from a plant-based diet and composting our garbage. And to me, that gives me a lot of hope because that's something that we can do as individuals and that we can encourage our friends to do. So the, the film, everybody, seriously, you must see this film. You can watch it absolutely free on YouTube or on the website endgame2050.com. And 
I, I just want you to describe a little bit about how you did it, that you teamed with Moby, and he had some amazing things to say. He's a great storyteller. And then you started out with a little fictional, futuristic feature film, which kept coming up through the documentary. Tell us why you decided to do it that way. It was just a desperate attempt to make it, like, in my mind, like, entertaining. I was like, well, this data is so compelling, but, you know, maybe if I put something, you know, in my, I am, as I mentioned, I am from Mexico, and in Mexico, people love telenovelas. I don't, but I know that people get drawn to them. So in my mind, I was like, well, why do I put a little telenovela in the beginning, and maybe that way, and keep coming back to that, like a telenovela that it takes place in the year 2050. And maybe that will like create all this body of information more watchable. So that was <laughs> my thinking behind that. And Moby, yeah, Moby is, is very is is great in the film. He's very direct. He's very assertive. So I'm really glad um, that um, that he's in it. Uh, he really wasn't involved in the making of the film. Like I actually had finished the film and then got an interview with him, and and then incorporated all of his stuff while taking stuff from the film that I had already finished but it was in my mind so important to have him in there because he just speaks with such you know he doesn't you know he's so assertive that I thought it was just wonderful that yeah to have him. <laughs> well he's also very clear very humble even his opening story in the film is about a, a guy who was drunk and high on heroin and just thought life was great and he was feeling wonderful and had this terrible car accident that cost him his legs and, and took the lives of two of his friends. But until that moment, they, they thought everything was great. And his point is that that's where we are now. We, we know about these things, kind of, sort of, and yet we're living as if it's not really true. So a film like yours is just so incredibly important. And everybody, it is so watchable. I watched it twice. I, I watched it because I knew that uh, Dr. Ochoa was going to be on my show. Then I watched it again with my husband. And, and I was just enraptured both times. So just in our last minute, uh, what do you want people to know? I want people to know that um, they were facing existential challenges that should be on the cover of every newspaper every single day. And that if we don't take aggressive action um, and really care about these things, we could, I guess the one thing that we could be facing them in our, in our lifetime, because it's not people say, oh, it's just my grandchildren. No, we're talking about in our lifetime. So if we want to be happy and have a livable life, you know, we need to really pay attention to what we're doing to the environment and, and, that's it, I think. <laughs> well, thank you. It, it's an absolutely beautiful film. Everybody, Endgame 2050. It's on that website, endgame2050.com. It is on YouTube. It is free. Watch it. Send it to everybody you know. And thank you so much for doing this beautiful work. Everybody else, stay with us. Thank you, Dr. Ochoa. We'll be back with Dr. Hans Deal and getting you super healthy. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. 
the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you'd like to know more about what goes on at Main Street Vegan, you can check us out at MainStreetVegan.net. So there is really a lot happening there. We have our wonderful Main Street Vegan Academy that trains and certifies vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. We've always done that live and in person in New York City. And the plan is to do that again in the summer of 2021. But in between now and then, we are doing that training on Zoom. So that makes it very affordable, very convenient. So do check that out. And also our blog and the film that I produced last year, A Prayer for Compassion, and lots more going on. And right now, I am so happy to be introducing to you someone that I have met at a Vegetarian Summerfest. It's now going to be called Vegan Summerfest. And he's been one of my favorite speakers because he is so direct, so to the point, and so practical. And he is Hans Deal, PhD. More than 85,000 people have graduated from the 35-hour educational program that he developed. It's known as the CHIP program. You've probably heard of it. It stands for Complete Health Improvement Program. And it has a stellar track record in addressing diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, heart disease, depression. Dr. Deal is Clinical Professor of Preventive Medicine in the School of Medicine at Loma Linda University, and his books have sold, oh, just 2 million copies in 36 languages. Welcome, Dr. Hans Deal. Thank you, Victoria. It's a pleasure being on your program. Uh, I've always uh, admired you as a very responsible sane voice in a crazy culture right now. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. It, it, it means a lot because I think, don't you, Dr. Deal, that just because we eat in a way that is outside the norm, sometimes people think that that sets up a barrier to looking at what we have to offer. And yet you and our wonderful plant-based physicians can offer so much science to back it up. So I think that's where we're going to reach a lot of people. They just haven't caught on yet to the idea that we are the only ones that are right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the argument to make. (laughs) So tell us uh, seriously, how did uh, the CHIP program develop? Where did that come from for you? Well, you know, I grew up in Germany uh, under very uh, humble circumstances after World War II. We basically grew all of our food, whatever we could grow in our gardens. We grew up uh, with basically a very simple diet, food as grown, and that has sort of um, shaped me uh, when I came to North America. 
uh, I recognized uh, that there was a great opportunity for um, uh, self-fulfillment, and uh, I uh, had a Christian uh, orientation. I uh, um, had a commitment to a service-oriented career, and uh, I recognized that in North America you have this concept of um, uh, social um, upward mobility. And which we didn't have in Germany in those days. And so I recognized I could become anything I wanted to be if I really applied myself. And so I chose to go into medicine, went to the Canadian mines, worked in mines there to earn my tuition, and uh, then came to Loma Linda University here in Southern California, an Adventist Christian medical school, and was waiting to get into medical school when I read this article in the Reader's Digest called Valleys of Beautiful Widows. And it was a story about a region in Finland, North Karelia, where um, they had the highest rate of heart disease, the highest rates of cholesterol, and men often died uh, at the age of 35, 45, 50 years, leaving behind beautiful young women. You know, and this was where the article title came from, Valley of Beautiful Widows. And these widows became so concerned about losing their husbands, um, if they still had some, that uh, they called on the Finnish government and said, please send us someone to help us here. We need to have something more than just doctors that are taking care of symptoms and managing the disease. We want to turn this disease off. We want to prevent it. So they sent a young uh, epidemiologist by the name of Pekka Puska, and he said, yeah. I can see why we have the highest rates of heart disease here in this area. We need to do something about our consumption patterns in our foods. Uh, this is a diet that's very high in fats, lots of dairy products, lots of meat. Then there's also smoking, lots of salt, and uh, we need to make some changes. And while his uh, emphasis was initially kind of uh, shall I say, poo-pooed, not taken seriously by his medical colleagues, the women were very serious. And they said, please, why don't you pick a woman from each of these villages here in these areas here and train them, and then they will go back and train the women of the villages, and then they will prepare the food so it ought to be prepared for the husbands. That's what they did. And 40 years later, 80% of the heart disease deaths were no longer there. They almost had wiped out heart disease in that area of Finland because they made some of these basic uh, changes in their uh, lifestyle. Big story. And as a result of this, um, I was introduced, while waiting, getting into medical school, I was introduced by the dean of the School of Public Health, and he said to me, you know, Hans, why don't you come and uh, take a look at our new program in the School of Public Health called a doctorate in health science, which combines the first two years of medical school and then the last two years of public health. And our program will be preparing people not just to deal with medical care one-on-one, -on -one, one doctor, one patient, but you, know, you can reach out to large population groups. You can lecture with this knowledge. You can um, become uh, uh, involved in the media 
because we need to make changes in our culture unless we transform our culture, unless we transform our society, the living habits, we will not take care of these killer diseases that were prominent in our society. Well, you mentioned Loma Linda University being Seventh-day Adventist, and I think um, most people who, who are vegan uh, know about some of the Adventist health studies. But why is it that there's this one Protestant denomination that is really carrying the torch for vegetarianism and healthy living in general? Yeah, you know, uh, Dan Butner uh, listed Loma Linda as one of the um, blue zones in the world, uh, which have the longest living people. And Loma Linda is sort of a symbol of the longest living people, centenarians, in uh, the North American society. Um, you know, like uh, last night, uh, we received a phone call, and uh, one of our friends called us up and said, This is Benita! 105 years of age, sparkling, uh, energetic, um, recognizing us very, very well, and making the call to see that we're doing okay when she's 105. So this is Loma Linda, and the, uh, the story goes that um, this is not just Loma Linda, where people live the longest. It's anywhere in the world where you have Adventists. Adventist Christians live on the average 8 to 16 years longer than anybody else, regardless of what society they are in. So if I do a research project in Japan and I study Adventists, they will live about 10 years longer there than the Japanese people. Then you can go to Poland and study Adventists there and they live about 8 to 12 years longer than other Polish people. And the same thing here in North America. Wherever you find Adventists, you find that they're living longer. And what is very interesting is that the Adventists divide themselves into, shall we say, four major dietary subgroups. Adventists in general believe in getting enough sleep, uh, being a nice person, being service-oriented, uh, being educationally uh, you know, aligned. Uh, uh, they believe in education. They believe in the constancy of marriage. Uh, you know, that's the ideal. Uh, they believe in exercise. They believe in no smoking, no alcohol. These are concepts that Adventists have embraced uh, for, well, since 18 1863, when a person who felt inspired and has been seen as one of the co-founders of the Adventist Christian community uh, expressed concern that people were dying unnecessarily, particularly in those days, uh, and she recommended that people should ideally follow a diet that is plant-based, and uh, that would be more foods as grown as they're prepared as they come in nature. So this is the background to this concept. And so the Adventist Church has always advocated no smoking, no alcohol, be careful with caffeine, you know, get enough sleep, these kind of things, these lifestyle issues that are now considered to be uh, called lifestyle medicine concepts. Uh, but within the Adventist Church, uh, the church never said, you have to become a vegan. The Adventist church said it is preferable to move towards food as it comes in nature, simply prepared without all the sugar and oil and 
and so on and so on. Keep it simple. And so the Adventist uh, community around the world is divided where about half of the Adventists, particularly in North America, half of the Adventists are vegetarian, meat eaters. Okay, they're consuming animal products. Then you have the other half of the Adventists are the basic vegetarians. Some of them eat fish. Some of them eat dairy products and eggs. And then one-tenth or 10% of all the Adventists are total vegans. And this is very important for us to think about because, remember, here is now a group, a worldwide global community that has a unique homogeneous lifestyle except in one area. And that's their slightly different dietary divisions among themselves. And this is why the government was so eager to call on the Adventist community at the Lomelina University here. And they said, look, you are the scientific center of the Adventist global community. Uh, why don't you turn in a grant proposal and study the Adventist differences in disease occurrence among these four different dietary groups? Right? Right. And, so and what did you find out? And so yeah. they have been doing this since 1958. And for instance, they found that Adventists in 1958 had virtually very, very low lung cancer. And it was the first indication that maybe smoking and lung cancer could possibly be, be related. They came out of the Adventist presence. Furthermore, they found again and again and again, particularly in the last 10, 15 years, in this large Adventist health study number two, where they enrolled some 97,000 people in North America. They followed them very, very, very carefully. They know everything about these people, their diet and so on. Followed them for seven years, and they found that the Adventist meat eaters had five times more cholesterol to be treated. They had four times more diabetes to be treated among the meat eaters when compared to the vegans. And they had about four times more, we talked about diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, always four to five times more frequently found in Adventist meat eaters when compared to vegans. And then, of course, you looked at the vegetarians that were fish eaters, and you looked at the vegetarians that were lacto-over-vegetarians, and there were three in between. So the point of the Adventist study then has been that the further you move towards a plant-based whole food diet, the more protected you are from these chronic diseases that are so common in our society that are responsible for 70% of our deaths. Well, it's utterly fascinating. And as, as you were speaking, Dr. Deal, I pulled off my bookshelf Ellen G. White's Councils on Diet and Foods, which she wrote, <laughs> I believe you said, in 1863. And as you leaf through this book and just look at the headings, it's as if you're reading something from a medical journal that came out last week. You know, some, some obviously of, of the wording is a little bit archaic, but the, the, the basics that she's talking about mm. is just what people are coming to know today. So you have yeah. quite a stunning history there. So I know yeah. that in the CHIP program, you have an eight-point plan for regaining and maintaining health so maybe you could just recite those eight points to us, and then in our 12 minutes or so that we have uh, left to speak, you can go into a little detail on some of them. So what are the eight points? 
Yeah, you know, these eight points have been summarized by this lady that you mentioned, Ellen G. White, um, who has written over 100,000 pages published. She is the most published female writer in the world with regard to serious topics. Uh, there's only one woman more than her that's Agatha Christie, and that's not <laughs> so much of serious uh, literature, but it's more uh, uh, for entertainment. Uh, so Ellen G. White, yes, talked about uh, the natural doctors. She talked about the idea even then, then uh, that uh, some of the uh, strange uh, pharmaceutical products that were then in vogue were not really treating the cause of disease, but they were basically just managing the symptoms. And, you know, not very much really has changed when it comes to today's pharmacological interventions. And so she recommended we need to go to the root cause of these common chronic diseases such as heart disease and type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure and depression and overweight. And she said these are related to eight factors, root factors, and she, uh, we put them into uh, a word called New Start, N-E-W, New, N-E-W, and then Start, S-T-A-R-T. And here's what she suggested would be wise to consider for good health. Number one, simple nutrition in foods as grown, um, lots of greens, Lots of fruits and vegetables, you know, uh, lots of whole grains, food as it come in nature. Then the E stands for a daily exercise program. Work in the garden, get into an exercise program, walk, um, uh, don't uh, be uh, a couch potato, we would say today. So exercise daily, get your 10,000 steps in. W, new, W, N E W, water. She advocated to drink lots of water. She uh, didn't specify how many glasses, but many uh, researchers today think that hydration is uh, in short supply in our society. We should have at least six, seven, eight, nine, ten glasses of water a day, fluids. Not alcohol, not coffee, but basically water, good water. So that's N-E-W, new. Then comes START. S stands for sunshine. She recommended that uh, people should, uh, when they exercise, should ideally do it outdoors, uh, especially uh, uh, get as much uh, work done outside as you can. So sunshine, vitamin D, it's all there. Then she talked about tea, new start as tea. She talked about temperance. Don't be extreme. You know, just be a nice person. Um, don't uh, position yourself at the right or left side, but uh, try to be reasonable, especially when it comes to social interactions. And be also very, very careful when it comes to um, um, things that might actually be pain hurtful, such as alcohol, tobacco, and so on. She was very, very clear on those. So then you have New Start, N-E-W-S-T, we talk about temperance. Then you have A, stands for air, fresh air. Uh, get uh, those windows open at night when you go to bed. Let fresh air come in as, as, as possible. Uh, be outdoors, uh, you know, spend at least, you know, some time outdoors every day. Um, avoid bad air, you know, 
no smoking. And then you have R, new start, R, rest. You know, be sure you get uh, adequate sleep. Uh, again, in our society today, most of us get six, seven hours of sleep. Uh, much of the research indicates that maybe it might be better if we would have more like six, seven, eight, nine hours of sleep at night, go to bed early and get up early in the morning. This is sort of what the wisdom was that she uh, offered at the time. She talked about that the uh, sleeping hours before midnight might be more beneficial than the hours after midnight. So again, these all have been largely confirmed by scientific research. And the last one was New Start, the T, New Start, um, uh, New Start with a D. Uh, that was divine or trust in uh, in uh, in yourself and in purposeful living, uh, trusting God as uh, a source that is available to us. Um, you know, live a purpose-driven life. So this is a new start. Eight natural remedies, and you know, today when we look at these chronic diseases, if you really want to prevent these diseases, if you want to heal these diseases. If you want to turn these diseases around, you have a very good chance to do that by following these eight simple, natural, shall we say, doctors. Oh, I love them. And we are going to list those on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net, where we'll also have information where you can contact both of our guests. And if you want some of the free literature and free helpful information from the CHIP program, you can just go to www.chiphealth.com slash free. So uh, we'll put those in the show notes as well, chiphealth.com slash free. So as I look at the new start, Dr. Deal, we've got nutrition, exercise, water, sunshine, temperance, air, rest and trust in God and purposeful living in your self or your higher self, however people interpret that. So will you just pick one of these that is sometimes overlooked that you particularly like to talk about and tell us a little bit more about that one? Well, you know, I uh, I like to uh, perhaps try to make the point that uh, today uh, with the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, we uh, know that people that have these comorbidities, people that have these underlying chronic diseases such as heart disease and overweight and diabetes type 2 and hypertension and depression, these people, when it comes to in-hospital deaths from the virus, the rates are three times higher when people have these underlying pathological conditions. So therefore, these eight natural doctors would not only help with these chronic diseases, but they would probably also be very, very outstanding in strengthening the immune system in people that have caught the virus. They would have much more power to repel and combat this virus if they wouldn't have these underlying conditions. Uh, you know, uh, conditions. And so when it comes to uh, the virus situation, I think that one of the most powerful interventions, one of the most powerful preventive aspects in terms of our modern killer diseases would have to be nutrition. I think we have to move as far 
toward a whole food, plant-based diet as we can. That means lots of green leafy vegetables, broccoli, spinach, kale, bell peppers, these kind of things. Lots of fruits such as strawberries and blueberries and blackberries and cranberries and pomegranates. These are all uh, antioxidants. That's what you want. And then also we want to enjoy more high-fiber foods such as whole grains, beans and lentils, fruits and avocados. Avocados are actually high in fiber, surprisingly. These are foods that are all very high in nutrient content that would help the body develop a healthy microbiome, the immune system, and reduce inflammation and give us a spectrum of micronutrients to maximize our health. So, I think you also at the same time want to sideline or preferably move towards eliminating animal products such as meats and hamburgers, eggs and dairy, and perhaps even let go of these obviously processed and engineered taste sensations, you know, these processed foods that are high in sugar, fat, and calories, but they are very poor nutrition and fiber. So I think here's a prescription that would help us with the chronic diseases, and if you perhaps add some garlic, which has antibacterial and antiviral effects, you might also help yourself in terms of making yourself less vulnerable to the virus, where we actually not only practice public health concepts like distancing and wearing a mask and so on, but we also begin to look at these eight natural doctors that were recommended more than 150 years ago by a lovely lady by the name of Ellen G. White, who's one of the books that you listed earlier on your shelf there. Well, it's fascinating to read her, and it is fascinating to listen to you. And I think that one of the amazing things that you do in the CHIP program and everybody at Loma Linda is that you take this wisdom that has been around a very long time, and and then you subject it to scientific scrutiny, and what you come out with is is unassailable. The the history is there. The um, the, the the proof is in the whole food pudding. So thank you so very much, Dr. Hans Diel. Bless you. And to everybody listening, God bless you too. And eat all your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio the voice of an awakening world. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.